book of Ephesians chapter 5. It is my intention, if the Lord be willing, to seek to finish the book of Ephesians. And we'll see how the Lord works through that in the upcoming weeks. But I would love to have that finished. And so we're going to read this morning Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, down through verse 14. What I'd like for you to note here in the latter parts of these verses, which are very, very difficult when it comes to proper understanding, I want you to note in verse 11, if you have a New American Standard, the word expose. It says, but instead even expose them. I think the King James has the word reprove them. And you may want to draw a little line down to verse 13 when it says, but all things become visible when they are exposed. Everybody see that uh, there in the passage and now help us in our understanding going forward. The other thing that will help is in verse 13, you have everything that becomes visible. Okay, And if you draw a little connection down to verse 14 when it says, and Christ will shine on you. I think if we have those two things marked in our Bibles here as we read, it will help us, I hope, to really understand what the Apostle is seeking to do here. So let's begin reading chapter 5 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The Apostle has been exhorting us to walk not in the former manner of our life or behavior, but to really walk as children of light, that we have been loved by the Lord, and therefore we are to love as He loved. A love that is cruciform, that is, It is a love that is in conformity with the cross of Jesus Christ. A cross that was clearly self-denying. The cross was clearly dying so that others may 
live, as Paul would write in the book of 2 Corinthians. It is a love that is painful. I think, again, it's clearly evident that for any human being to die on a cross is one of the most brutal, excruciating, painful events that anyone could go through to die. And outside of the offering of the antiseptic of the wine mixed with vinegar, which our Lord refused, there was no anesthesia, there was no painkiller, there was no morphine in those days. Jesus Christ experienced the fullness not only of the pain in his humanity, but also the wrath of God being poured out on him. He died to his self-interest and self-preservation so that others may live. This is the type of love that we are talking about here. And it is a love and a walk in love that is fragrant to God. We notice that in verse 2, He gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. This was well-pleasing. This was satisfying to God the Father. And it was approved of God. And so therefore, we in like manner, though we are sinful creatures still, even though we possess the Holy Spirit and we have been regenerated and been given a new heart and have new desires and really want to know what the will of God is and we really want to walk in that, Really, the full redemption occurs when our bodies are redeemed, our sin nature is shed in our death, and we stand before Him likened completely unto Him. Won't that be a marvelous, marvelous day? Now this means that any communication one to another Any communication in our thoughts, that is, yourself to yourself, or any behavior that is reflective of the flesh is not well-pleasing to God. It is not approved of God. And so therefore, Paul goes in and he just states in verse 3, of Ephesians 5, that immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among us as is proper among saints. It is proper, it is suitable, it is approved of God that no one in a local New Testament church should be identified by these types of behaviors. Not only should we not be identified with these types of behaviors, we certainly shouldn't be walking in them in a regular, consistent pattern of life. Because Paul says in verse 5, this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The kingdom of Christ referring to, I think, our present situation having been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And the kingdom of God referring to that kingdom that is all of his people, Jew and Gentile, but definitely that kingdom that is going to come and reign for a thousand years upon this earth. 
Well, if we're not to be identified by these types of things, including no filthiness, verse 4, or silly talk, or coarse jesting, what is to be our distinctive? Well, in our communication, in our thought, in our behavior, in our hearts, should be full of thanksgiving. And folks, if you're not aware of this, the world does its best to quench thankfulness to God. It gives all of its energies to quench that. And folks, that is one reason why you you may have thoughts in trial like, where is God? Is He hiding His face? Your flesh will say unto you, well, you're guilty. You've done these sins. And what does it do? It moves your heart, right? It moves your heart to coldness. And when there is coldness, there is a lack of thanksgiving one for another. Now perhaps the saddest thing, at least to my mind, is the fact that throughout New Testament history, in fact even before that, God's people are very prone to being misled in this arena. For our scripture reading, we read in the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul told the Corinthians, do not be deceived. Now brethren, I think it again, and I'm using this phrase frequently, but I think it's clearly evident that when God warns us not to be deceived, it means that we are very much liable to being deceived in this area. He says it again in verse 6 of Ephesians 5, let no one deceive you. And so I want to preach this morning on this subject, the misleading of a church. The misleading of a church. In 1999, a book, a commentary was published, and in that commentary, the writer of that commentary wrote this. It is all too easy for believers to be influenced by the surrounding world and to succumb to its ways of thinking and behaving. Now he wrote that in 1999, which means, since that was the year the book was published, he actually wrote that previous to 1999 perhaps even several years before 1999. It's all too easy for believers to be influenced by the surrounding world and to succumb to its ways of thinking and behaving. The result is that what is acceptable to the culture of the day becomes acceptable in the church. This is particularly true in contemporary Western society in the area of sexual immorality, unquote. Now that was some 
22, 23, 24 years ago. How much more true is that statement today? Folks, you and I are living in a culture that is increasingly drunk with fornication. Some of us that are older, some of you don't even weren't even born in 1999. But those of us who are older and those of us that are even older than I am can remember a day when no impure word was allowed to be heard on television. None. No blasphemy, no speaking of, quote, going to hell, no damning words, none of that. That was considered anathema in America. Today, of course, we are all aware of the growing loudness and voices of homosexuality. If you and I were trying to judge our nation basically upon the newspapers and the trends of the social media, we would think that almost everyone in America approves of homosexuality, which is not true. And today, the media is working very, very hard to get the culture to accept polygamy. Polygamy is the having of more than one spouse. In a newspaper as prominent as the Wall Street Journal, which is in many ways a more conservative paper in our nation, in other words, it's not like the New York Times or the Washington Post, but in the Wall Street Journal several weeks ago, I, there was an article in there on exercise and in that article, it talked about <clears throat> that people <clears throat> who are married have exercise spouses. And what they meant by that was a spouse that you may not have intimacy with, but a spouse that in every other way with that person who's not your spouse, you would have familiarity with them. I actually wrote a comment under that article of which there was multiple likes on the article. And basically I said this, that there is no such thing as an exercise spouse. Right? This past week, in the same newspaper, it was talking about people returning to the workplace, to the offices. And a statement within that paper, I'm not quoting, but said that since we're returning to to our offices, it's now time to pick back up your work spouse. Now just think about the, folks, think about the terminology. What are they trying to get you to agree with? That you have a spouse you live with, you have a spouse you exercise with, you have a spouse that you work with. That's three spouses. That's polygamy. 
And it's all too easy for us without thinking to really pick up statements like that. Years ago, before the work spouse and the exercise spouse, what they tried to call people in the workplace is your best friend. And they would talk about that you have this best friend. Well, my best friend's my spouse. She's sitting here. (laughs) Now, I have good friends. I have acquaintances. Okay. But your best friend is to be your spouse. This is an attempt by our culture to propagate something. And folks, this is... These types of fornications are rampant in our society, and I won't go into the details, but my wife has described to me of having to go in homes where there are multiple people living there in intimate relationships. Does this have an effect on the church? The answer to that is yes. We are not immune to picking up terminologies and to being led, to being led slowly but surely to a toleration, then to an adoption, and then to actively engage in that type of behavior. And folks, I think we would do, be doing ourselves a disservice if we would say that would never happen. It happened with divorce and remarriage. I remember a day in our country where that was, that was kind of an anathema. <clears throat> totally acceptable today, even in our churches. And folks, if you, if you read through your Bible and if you really begin to note this, you will find that in your Bible, perhaps the most overwhelming named sin in your Bible is immorality. Some of you have even mentioned that the last parts of the book of Judges, you just, it's almost you can't read it. It is so shameful what was going on. Human immorality pervades the Bible. Why is that? Because it is a sin that is associated with idolatry. Now, I think it would be a mistake for us to think that idolatry only deals with physical things. In other words, that we would never bow down to an idol. Well, the majority of the world does. But folks, in the prophets, they accused Israel of engaging in this sin of fornication because they had committed adultery against the Lord. It was a spiritual 
adultery. Not a physical adultery. When fornication is rampant, it's because something in the hearts of people have already occurred. They have committed a spiritual fornication, a spiritual adultery against the Lord, and therefore, when that persists and it becomes hardened in a person's heart, they actually begin to engage what their heart has already determined. Is there spiritual adultery occurring in our nation today? I think the answer to that is clearly yes. And it is to our shame. When we look in the New Testament, we find warnings, we find exhortations, we find admonitions, all against this sin. We won't turn to it, we'll be turning to some other passages, but in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 20 and 29, and Acts chapter 21 and verse 25, the church at Jerusalem, when they had that members meeting, they sent a letter to the Gentile churches, and in that letter, among other things, they said to abstain from fornication. That's interesting of all the things that they could have stated to the Gentile church, that one of several was mentioned to them. In the book of Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, it says that fornication is a work of the flesh. Jesus said it comes out of our heart. In other words, folks, it's not merely my circumstances as it were forced me to do this, This is something that is flowing out of a person's heart. And that's why I mentioned, as the major prophets did, this spiritual adultery that was going on against God. And the book of Revelation tells us, and I'll just quickly give you these, Revelation 9.21, Revelation 14.8, 17.2 and 4, Revelation 18 and verse 3, and Revelation 19 and verse 2, all state clearly that in that day the world will be saturated, it actually uses this word, drunk with all forms of fornication. That's the world where this is heading. So folks, unless the Lord comes down and does something to revive His church and to have that impact overflow into lost people's lives, we call that revival, right? Unless God does something along this nature, this is where everything's going. The laws of the world are all going to approve this. The laws of the world are all going to be against people who disapprove of this. This is where the world is going. But folks, I want to just read to you and listen very carefully a very explicit passage, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. It says this, Marriage is to be held in honor. Do you hear that? 
Marriage is dishonored today in our nation. And in some ways, the church of Christ also is dishonoring marriage. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. In other words, no exception among the saints. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Why? Why should we hold marriage in honor and why should the marriage bed, referring to intimacy, be undefiled? Because fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Any exception to that? No exception to that, folks. This is another statement of certainty and warning. And folks, when we think about that, and we think about the certainty of this, why do we think that our nation is going to escape the judgment of God? It's not just killing babies. That's murder. But the rampant immorality and the growing acceptance and toleration of this, the separation... Hear this, the separation, not us separating from the world, although that ought to be, but the separation from New Testament churches that are holding to the scriptural truth and giving admonition about this, the separation of people leaving those churches. That's amazing, isn't it? Why should we think that it would be any different in our day? And folks, remember, the Scripture says that judgment begins where? In the house of God. Begins here, and then spreads out. Perhaps the more shocking aspect of all this isn't that the world does this. The most shocking aspect of this is the tendency of New Testament churches to tolerate, to adopt, and teach the accommodation of forms of fornication. That's what's more shocking. Now I do want us to turn to the book of Revelation to chapter 2. We're going to go here, and then we're going to go to the Corinthian church. You're aware that the book of Revelation is divided up into those things that were and those things that are. Things that are is in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 dealing with the seven churches. Those were real churches. The problems were real in those churches. And the admonition from the Lord Jesus Christ to those churches was not imaginary. It was real. Jesus intended those churches to act on that instruction. But it is also true that it is instruction for all the churches today. So those churches was what what is in John's day. And then from chapter 4 on is that which is to come. 
this sin entered into the early into the early New Testament churches very quickly. When you think that the book of Revelation was written perhaps around 90 AD, Christ died somewhere around 33 AD, somewhere in there. You're talking 40, 50 years, 60 years at the max, that here we have this entering into these churches. And two of these churches accommodated this sin. And in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 14, John writes from the Lord to the angel, that is the pastor of the church, the messenger of the church in Pergamum. He writes this, Revelation 2 verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there, that is in the church, some who hold the teaching of Balaam. What was Balaam teaching? He kept teaching Balak to put a, number one, a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Everybody see that? In other words, folks, there in that church were some who held to that teaching. What teaching? Well, <clears throat> number one, to partake of the idol sacrifices. And of course you remember that was one of the issues in Corinth. They wanted to go to the, to the idolatrous sacrifices. Why? Because that's where the best food was. That's where the whole community gathered together and socialized. But folks, Balaam taught Balak that the way to get God's disfavor upon the children of Israel was to invite them to these idolatry feasts and to commit acts of immorality. And what that meant was is an intermingling of the world with the people of God. They would invite them to their feast. People would say, I'm sure this, it's not in the text, but I'm sure they would say, well, I can handle it. These are my friends. If I don't go, they're going to be mad at me. I'm going to lose relationships. Etc., etc. But what it did is it sought to move them from a heart that was on guard against this type of thing to an acceptance that's the way people are to a toleration of it. That is the devil's plan. And folks, it was not only at the church at Pergamum, it was at the church at Thyatira. If 
you look down at verse 14 of this same chapter, excuse me, verse 20 of this same chapter, Jesus speaks to the messenger at the church of Thyatira that he was to read and to take action upon. It says, verse 20, But I have this against you, that you tolerate. Everybody see that word? You tolerate. At the church at Pergamum, people were holding to the doctrine. But at the church at Thyatira, they were tolerating it. And it was seen in their toleration of the woman Jezebel. Now let me just pause here. Was Jezebel a born-again person? No, but evidently this Jezebel in that church, and it could have been a literal person named Jezebel, it could have just been a category. I kind of lean toward a category. Evidently this woman that was being tolerated did have a profession of faith in Christ or she wouldn't have been part of the church, right? You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. She would have been a leader in that New Testament assembly. And she not only holds, she teaches and leads my bondservants astray. Everybody see that? so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And folks, I just want to encourage you, if I could come alongside of you and exhort you, if I could give all my zeal and pour it into your cup about this, folks, if God's bondservants can be led astray to do these types of things because what happens in their heart is they begin to envy the things of the world. They envy it. They envy their entertainment. They envy their laughter. They envy the fact that it doesn't look like that they're having as much trouble and trial in this world as you are. I mentioned to my wife this past week, we were watching a sporting event and the commercial came on. I said, have you ever noticed that in commercials they're always happy? They're happy when they're partying. They're happy when they're drinking. They're happy when they're engaging in this licentious lifestyle. They're just happy about this. And there you are. You feel all alone. You look at this. You don't embrace it all at one time, but there begins to arise up in you an envy about this. And when that happens, we certainly can be led astray. Even Asaph himself in the Psalms mentions that his foot almost slipped. Why? Because he was envious at the prosperity of the wicked. And parents, your children are exceptionally susceptible to this. One of the things about children, I used to, I know it's hard to believe, I used to be a child. (laughs) I used to think this way. I'm mature. 
I make my own decisions. I can handle it. <laughs> Folks, one of the marks of being an adult is no, you're not that mature. And you can't handle it. You need Christ. Our young people are being led astray with false teaching, false straw men. And they are being led astray with teaching that looks biblical. But it does not take into account the whole counsel of God. Many of you, especially you younger, aren't old enough, but I, I lived through the 60s. I lived through the transition of the 70s. I was around when contemporary Christian music began. I've seen a lot of casualties in my years. And folks, it all begins with an envying at the prosperity of the wicked. This is what I want. And what we do then, since we know what we want, we try to justify it with the Bible. Why do I say that? Because that's what the Corinthians were doing. Not under the law, I'm under grace. So all things are lawful for me. And Paul has to correct that. And folks, if you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, as we look at the church that is perhaps most widely known for this sin in the New Testament is the Corinthian church. And folks, one of the reasons why it is mostly seen in the Corinthian church is because they lived in a city called Corinth. What was so special about Corinth? It was known in the Roman world as the most licentious city in the Roman Empire to be called Corinthianized was not a good thing. It means you had succumbed to these types of things. And folks, you know in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that what crept into that church was actually a young man taking his father's own wife in intimate relationships. It was a sin that not even the Gentiles accepted. But folks, why did they do that? It wasn't just because of the culture. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2. Here's the problem. You have become arrogant. The church was puffed up. We call that pride. Paul stated that the accommodation, the toleration of this sin was an evidence of pride. 
And in fact, if you look at chapter 5 and verse 6, not only did they tolerate it in their arrogancy, but in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. They even bragged about this toleration. And folks, we have people today on the internet that are bragging about this toleration. This is amazing. And that is why in chapter 6 and verse 9, Paul reminds them that these types of behaviors that are habitual and characterize people, are these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I wonder how people would respond to that dogmatism today. But folks, what they did was, is they sought, the Corinthian church sought to accommodate this with biblical teaching. And of course, we saw in chapter 6 and verse 9, we saw when they went down, excuse me, verse 12, that one of the ways that they were justifying this was that all things are lawful for me. But Paul had to correct it. Yes, but all things are not profitable. Then he repeats the way they justified it. All things are lawful for me. Yes, but Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. They tried to justify it by saying, well, you know, sexual relationships, that's just an appetite of the human body. God designed it this way. God designed the body to be used in this shape and fashion. And he says, verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. That's appetite, but God will do away with both of them. But the body is not for immorality. God did not create your body for immoral purposes. It's not just an appetite like food or drink. It's amazing. They're trying to justify this, aren't they? And folks, not only did they try to justify it this way, they tried to justify it by going after the Apostle Paul. And you'll note here when he talks about In chapter, I wrote down the wrong verse here. In chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So there was the command by the apostle. If I could use a word of anathema today, Paul would say, you are to separate from immoral people. Alright, you know what you know what the church at Corinth did? They took that command and they twisted it. And they twisted it that what Paul meant was to become isolationist from the world. People today would say something like this, well, if you're separate over stuff like that, then you're going to become like Amish people. 
That's not what Paul meant. But they twisted it. And so he says in verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. Folks, we live in this world, right? I didn't mean the immoral people of the world or with covetous or swindlers or with idolaters because the only way you could have done that if I told you to separate from all immoral people, that is, immoral people in the world, the only way that you could have done that is to actually exit the world. Well, what did Paul mean? Verse 11, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Everybody see that? In other words, folks, people take those separatist commands and they twist them. And Paul has to go back and say, look, I'm not talking about, you know, disengaging, disassociating from the world. Because then you'd have to exit the world. What I'm talking about is not to associate with immoral people who claim to be believers. That's who I'm referring to. Because Paul, if you look down in chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul calls these types of people outsiders. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Does everybody see that? Okay. And folks, there are outsiders and there are insiders. (laughs) Those that are inside the church are called saints. Those who are outside the church are called sinners. Paul says, what if I, these people who are so-called brothers, they're not even part of the body of Christ, even though they may be in the church. They're outsiders. And folks, since they're outsiders, where should they be? Outside. Right? Which is exactly what Paul commanded to this so-called brother in 1 Corinthians 5. And thanks be to God, as far as we know, that brother in 1 Corinthians 5 repented and got right with the church and the Lord. Hallelujah for that. Folks, when we're talking about being a separatist, we're not talking about doing things to be odd. We're not talking about being isolationist. But we are talking about being a light and salt in this world. Folks, if an outsider comes in and the church is no different than the world, what would you think that person would say? Well, there's no benefit to me coming to Christ because you're no different than than I am. 
And we're not different for different sake because as saints, we know that we're sinners. And we need Christ. And they need Christ. And they need to see a church that to the best of their ability and the grace of God that is upon them to be different from the world. And that doesn't mean that you choose some year and you're just going to conform yourself to that year. I mean, we're, we're not walking around in robes and sandals, are we? No, we're not doing that. Okay. We don't say, well, I want to be like the 1890s. Or let, let's just be like the 1940s. Okay. But folks, there are certain things that don't change. And if the world identifies something with their sensual behavior, even though that something may not be inherently sinful, we don't want to identify with that. Now, 40 years later, we may be able to identify with it because the world's moved on. But we can't identify yourself. I mean, let me word it this way. You know, Roman Catholic priests, we kind of joke about this, they have their collar backwards. You know? Everybody know what I'm talking about? They wear different clothing to set themselves off. Now, what if I came to church service next Sunday wearing that? Would you say to yourself, well, that's his liberty. You know, if he wants to wear that, that's fine. Okay, but what is everybody else out there thinking? That I am a Catholic priest. (laughs) Right? Is there anything inherently evil with me wearing that? No, it's cloth. Okay? But it has an identification with it. Identification needs to be avoided. Now folks, 50 years from now, if all the Catholic priests are wearing blue jeans and flannel shirts, then then maybe it'll be okay. Alright? But today it has a strong identifying factor with it. We don't have time to apply it in other areas, but I'm just trying to get you to see that being a separatist is not being odd for odd's sake. It's not just saying, well, you know, I hate the world, and so I'm going to be odd this way. We're doing it to be salt and light. We're doing it to obey the Scripture. The church in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 was told to flee immorality. Not tolerate it, but run away from it. And not only that, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 7 and 8, Paul actually uses Old Testament examples about God's reaction over this type of sin. He refers to the nation of Israel, and we won't really trace it down other than to point out that Paul is using it illustratively to warn the Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's immorality. Verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. What was God's response? 23,000 fell in one day. 
we know the Lord's reaction to something like this. And although He is merciful and He is patient, He gave the woman Jezebel space to repent. But He will judge these types of things. Folks, my point is is to show that when you have a culture that is immersed in all forms of fornication, the tendency, unless you zealously guard this, is for the church to accommodate it and then justify it under so-called New Testament teaching. And folks, the two most common things today that I hear is that when a person stands for something like this, that they are unloving. Now folks, why would I be unloving if I'm warning you not to come under God's judgment? But I liken it to this. Parents, I liken it when you have to tell a child no. And the child says, you just don't love me. It is unloving to commit these sins to the Lord and it is unloving to commit these sins to God's people. The second argument that I hear today is, well, if you take this type of stand, how are you going to reach them for Christ? I mean, if, you, if, if this is a put-off to people, it's not that you're putting them off, but it's a put-off for people. They're, they're not going to stand and have someone tell them it's wrong. Then how are you going to reach them for Christ? And folks, my response to that is this. How can you not do this and then reach them for Christ? The way, if they're engaged in these types of things as a behavior, they have to repent of this and come to Christ to be delivered from this. Right? Salvation delivers us from these types of sins. We can fall into them in a singular act. We can struggle with them as a believer that still has a sinful nature in our flesh. But this is not to be characteristic of God's people. And if it is, then you fall under a so-called, so-called brother. In other words, you have no assurance that you're really a child of God if you are abiding in these types of sins. And sometimes I have to wonder if we're really reaching people. We may have them attend our church. We may have them make a profession of faith. We may have them pray a prayer. But, but are they genuine? And only the Lord can figure that out in that day. So folks, are we susceptible to this as a church? The answer to that is yes. And so Paul says, as we go back to the book of Ephesians, he says, don't be partakers with them. Meaning, not just don't be a partaker in their sin, 
Don't be a partaker in the Lord's judgment on them. What does He say to us? Well, you'll notice that in verse 8 He says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It may be interesting to you to know that He didn't say that you were formerly in darkness. That is true. He says you were darkness. He doesn't say you're now in the light, although that's true. But He says now you are light. So what is He saying? Every believer in this room is light. And when the members who are light come together, then the church is light. When Jesus was on earth, He said, I am the light of the world. But He's not here anymore. The light of the world today is His church. So He tells the disciples, let your light so shine. Don't hide it under a bushel. Because the purpose of light is to give light to all the room so that, I know this is simple, they can see. Because the world not only is darkness, it is in darkness. Their minds have been blinded by the evil one so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, folks, how in the world are they going to see it? By seeing a church that's letting its light shine. Three things. Number one, don't let anyone deceive you, verse 6. Folks, don't let people deceive you with empty words. An empty word is a word that bears no fruit to God. It is devoid of value in the hearer. You hear the words, but it doesn't bear any fruit to God in you. Don't be deceived. And folks, here's the thing about false teaching. 2 Timothy brings this out. It'll, it will scratch an itch on your ear. And the Bible says that in the last days, people will not tolerate sound doctrine. But they will... Now listen to these words. They will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And folks, what is true today wasn't true some 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Because now we are surrounded, because of social media, we are surrounded with voices. You know, if you just go back 1930s, 1940s, I mean, you, you'd have to get you know, a horse and buggy or a car if you were wealthy enough. You'd have to travel someplace. The voice that you heard was the Bible, hopefully, through your local church pastor. 
But now it's everywhere, isn't it? It's all around us. And folks, God's wrath is upon people. It says, let no one deceive you. Why? Because it doesn't bear fruit in your life. Why? Because for these things, the wrath of God comes upon the children, sons of disobedience. Meaning, disobedience characterizes their life. And folks, this is a term used for lost people. And God's wrath certainly is being seen today because God is giving people over to this sin. But folks, one day, one day, and this is very grievous to say, but one day God's wrath is going to come unmixed with mercy upon this world. Not only let no one deceive you, but secondly, do not be partakers with them. Verse 7. If you share in their behavior, you will share in the wrath. You are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. And folks, children of light means, verse 9, that there is fruit from being a child of the light. I mentioned to you, don't let anyone deceive you with fruitless words. Words that don't bear fruit. Well, folks, God's Word always bears fruit. What kind of fruit does it bear? Verse 9, The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. We'll talk more about fruit, Lord willing, when we get down to being filled with the Spirit. But folks, God's Word is fruitful. It's not empty in the lives of genuine believers. God's light, when it's born into a person, brings forth this fruit. And not only does it bring forth that fruit, it brings forth an ambition. Look at verse 10. Trying to learn what is pleasing in the Lord to the Lord. You're not living for yourself. You may... Mess up, you may mistake, but there is something inside of you. There's this driving, growing thing in your heart. You want to know what is pleasing to the Lord. And it becomes very immature when you're first saved, but it becomes your driving ambition. As Paul would state in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a zeal to examine everything in life everything in life, everything in life in order to approve what is acceptable to the Lord. And then thirdly, verse 11, do not participate. We're not to associate with such behaviors. We don't go to drinking parties in an attempt to try to win them to Christ. We wait and try to win them to Christ when they're sober. We're not to associate with such behaviors, behaviors of so-called brothers, but rather we are to expose them, verse 11. Now these passages, verse 11 through 14, are very, very difficult. And it's difficult because... You have the command to expose them, and then in verse 12, you have the command not to speak of them. 
Isn't that interesting? Expose them, but don't speak of them. And folks, what he's saying here is this. When it comes to the deeds of darkness, they are shameful things. Verse 12, it is disgraceful. It is shameful to have to discuss it. And if you notice, I'm I'm trying to make the point using words that you and I would understand in today's culture, but not going into detail about them. Why? It's shameful. And every believer should have a scripturally developed, growing sense of shame about the deeds of darkness out there. Well, what does it mean? What does it mean to expose them? Well, verse 14 really helps us with that. But here's what it means. It means to bring them to the light of Christ. You might have to mention their deed in categories. I mean, Paul's using the word fornication, isn't he? You might have to use a category like that. But the aim is to bring them to the light of Christ. Children of light bear the fruit of light. So don't walk according to your former manner of behavior. Don't do that. That's what he's saying to us. And then he concludes in verses 13 and 14. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you what I think this means. Folks, I think it means this. That it does parallel John chapter 3 verses 19 through 21 that... Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So they don't come to the light lest their deeds are exposed. But there are people who come to the light. That's believers. Believers come to the light so that their deeds will be exposed, that their deeds have been worked in them through God. That is not a deed of the flesh, but it is a deed of the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. So folks, basically what Paul was saying in verse 14 is this, is that he is exhorting people who are dead in trespasses and sins. You see that? Arise from the rise from the dead. He's exhorting people who might be in the church who are still dead in their trespasses and sins and abide in darkness to wake up. To wake up to their state. To wake up to the coming wrath of God to wake up and come to the light. Because if you come to the light, verse 14, Christ will shine on you. And He had already shined on genuine believers, hasn't He? 
just as He has shined on us, just as such were some of us, fornicators, covetous, idolaters, revilers, swindlers. That was the way we used to live. But now Christ has shined on us. And He has shined in us. And we are now shining for the glory of God. I want to encourage you here this morning that if you are outside of Christ, to wake up. Folks, when you're asleep, you are asleep to what's going on around you. You're, you're, you're dead to that which is around you, that's happening around you, to reality. You're asleep. That's why when people get discouraged, they want to go to sleep. Why? They just want to escape the discouragement, right? But the discouragement's still there. It's just they're asleep. <laughs> Wake up! And come to the light and let Christ shine on you and deliver you from these things. And church of God, please be on guard. Personally, be on guard. You can't avoid the billboards. Your eyes are going to see them. Don't linger on them. You might have to not watch that television show. You might have to not watch that commercial. You might go all the way to not having a television. But whatever it is, don't linger with this. And don't allow envy to rise up in your heart at the prosperity of the wicked or at the prosperity of churches who tolerate and teach and justify this type of thing with the people of God. Don't associate with that. Let's pray.